I sometimes read uh, public domain books here on Leaves of Glen. And they were written a long time ago, uh, so they're usually uh, racist or sexist or bigoted. Uh, but in there somewhere and all that is a, a story, and that's why those stories are famous. Other times, I read uh, works from independent authors, and they're delightfully not racist, but they might have adult language or adult situations. So that's your warning, uh, but I'm sure you uh, are grown up enough to handle it. Don't write to me complaining. Well, things have uh, gotten amplified recently, I'd say. I had actually uh, started recording this a few days ago, but um, and I wanted to keep up the the ambient background noises of me at bedtime stories. And um, thought that'd be fun, kind of harkening back to the Golden Age podcasting. Uh, you know, she'd been doing it for over 10 years. Uh, you know, that's the independent, upstart, little guy podcasting because they do it for love. And now with uh, Joe Rogan moving over to Spotify, and you can only hear his show if you have Spotify and stuff, it kind of changes podcasting, I think. And if that becomes a trend... Uh, podcasting from the little guy is not much you're going to see or have easy access to, I think, in the future if this is the way things are going. So it's kind of a sad thing. So I thought, oh, yeah, this will be like my tribute. Uh, But then, yeah, um, because of here in Minneapolis, uh, I live right outside of Minneapolis where all the action is going on. Uh, you know, you hear a lot of police sirens and helicopters and stuff. And so trying to record the, uh, the calming outside was really not going well. So, uh, and yeah, who would have thought when I started doing this podcast a year ago that I'd be making a podcast during, uh, some of the most pivotal times in my lifetime. Uh, you'd think I should say something about it, but I realize I don't have anything intelligent to add. So I'm just not going to say a lot. Uh, I've been hearing a lot of uh, stories, uh, catching up with people who live in the area where the third precinct was burnt down. And um, overall, they say all the protesters are fine. They're not jerks. No one's running around screaming and yelling. It's pretty pretty calm and, and laid back for the most part. Everyone's fairly friendly. And when tear gas was going around and the rubber bullets, people were helping each other and that sort of thing. <clears throat> I have a friend that lives a block away and uh, from the 3rd Precinct, and he said that uh, he'd still you know, be able to go out and get groceries and stuff, even though the auto parts store got burnt down and everything, because uh, everyone was fine. It wasn't dangerous or anything like that. Uh, he just said that at night, it's when uh, all these other kids would come out and uh, start burning more stuff down and, and looting and going crazy like that. So, I think by the second night, he decided he should go stay at a friend's house, uh, bring his whole family and everything. Which is probably for the best. Uh, he said there's ashes in his backyard and everything, and uh, probably just safer to be somewhere else. Uh, yeah, that's kind of it. Had other friends in the area telling me some stories and stuff. Uh, the, I got nothing important to say about it. It's just been interesting. Uh, you know, as things got worse, uh, you got more worried for them and everything, but... Uh, here in my neck of the woods, um, I don't think a lot's happened. It's uh, the looting and the and the violence and stuff has gotten closer, real close to my uh, neighborhood, 
but nothing's actually happened here as far as I know. Uh, it is weird to see the targets boarded up and closed and stuff. Can't go there. Uh, I think they're going to reopen on Monday. And that's kind of it. Um, the George Floyd who was murdered by the Minneapolis police, uh, turns out he lived in my neighborhood. So there's been a lot of talk about that. But I have nothing important to add about it. Uh, I guess that's kind of it. So, with me making a point of not trying to say anything, because... Uh, it's just going to come off ignorant. Uh, I guess we should dive into the story. Uh, where we left off last time, Human Jerk uh, decides that he wants to start testing everyone, even though he already hired all of them, uh, with, the, with the labor union. And he's kind of a jerk. He hates labor unions. Uh, he thinks they're all uh, babyish. And uh, he thinks everyone he hired are morons. And he's convinced they're going to burn down the, uh, the nuclear power plant that they work in. I would like to think that this story is going to take a turn for the better uh, and that uh, maybe there'll be a positive message of some sort because I could use it. Uh, I've got the beautiful outside ambient sounds going on right now. Uh, I could use a nice, uh, uplifting story to make you feel better during these times when everyone's feeling kind of unsafe and stuff. Uh, So, let's dive into it and... uh, For God's sake, let's hope for the best. At 16.30, Doris Reeves came in, finding him still at his desk. I have the written tests all finished, and I have about 20 of the tests and interviews completed, she said. I'll have to evaluate the results, though. I wonder if there's a vacant desk around here, uh, anywhere, and a record player. Record player? Yes, sure. Ask Joan to fix you up. Uh, She'll find a place for you to work, and if you're going to be working late, I'll order some dinner for you from the cafeteria. (laughs) I'm going to be here all evening myself. (laughs) Sid Keating came in a short while later, peeling out of his overcoat jacket and shoulder holster. I don't think they've got everything out of that reactor, he said. Radioactivity's still the most uh, active normal, about 800 REMs. And the temperature, way up, too. That isn't lingering radiation. Uh, that's prompt radiation. Whatever all that means. Radioactivity hasn't dropped since morning, and I think so, too, Melroy uh, said. What are they uh, getting on the breakdown counter? Mostly neutrons, uh, 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 alpha particles. I talked to Fred Hossinger, uh, the maintenance boss. Uh, he doesn't like it. Uh, well... I'm no nuclear physicist, Melroy disclaimed, but all that alpha stuff looks like a big chunk of PU-239 left inside. What's uh, what's Fred doing about it? Oh, poking around inside the reactor with telemetered scanners and remote control equipment. When I left, uh, he had a gang pulling out graphite blocks with RC tongs. He probably uh, won't get a chance to work on it much before 1300 tomorrow. Somebody mowing their lawn? 
kind of late in the day. He unzipped a bulky briefcase uh, he had brought in under his arm and dumped papers onto the desk. I still have uh, this stuff to get straightened out, too. Uh, had anything to eat? Then call the cafeteria. He's always pushing the cafeteria. And have them send up three dinners. Dr. Reeves is eating here, too. Find out what she wants. Uh, I want pork chops. Uh, little Abner Melroy, pork chops, unless otherwise specified. Keating got up and went out to the middle office. As he opened the door, Melroy could hear a recording of somebody being given a word association test. Half an hour later, when the food arrived, they spread their table on a relatively clear desk in the middle office. Doris Reeves had finished evaluating the completed tests after dinner, and she intended going over the written portions of the uncompleted tests. How the finished tests come out? Melroy asked her. Better than I expected. Only two washouts, she replied. Harvey Burris and Julius Koffler. Oh, no, Keating wailed. The IFAW steward and the loudest mouth I know my rights boy on the job? Well, that wasn't to be expected, Melroy asked. If you'd seen the act those two put on. Oh, they're both inherently stupid, infantile, and deficient in reasoning, ability, and judgment, Doris said. Koffler is a typical adolescent, problem child, show-off type, and Burris is an almost specified 12-year-old schoolyard bully. Ah, they both have inferiority complexes long enough to step on. If the purpose of this test is what I'm led to believe it is, I can't, in professional good conscience, recommend anything uh, but that you get rid of both of them. What's Bob's getting at? If they're the very ones who can claim, with the best show of plausibility, that the test is just a pretext to fire them for union activities, Melroy explained. And the worst of it is, they're the only ones... Maybe we can scrub out a couple more of the written tests alone. And they'll have company, Keating suggested. No, I can't do that, Doris was firm on the point. Eh, The written part of the test was solely for the ability to reason logically. Just among the three of us, I know that some university professors who'd flunk on that. But if the rest of the test shows stability, a sense of responsibility, good judgment, and a tendency to think before acting, the subject can be classified as safe and a reliable workman. Well, then, let's don't say anything till we have the tests all finished, Keating proposed. No, Melroy cried. Every minute those two are on the job, there's a chance they may do something disastrous. I'll fire them at 0800 tomorrow. All right, Keating shook his head. I only work here, but don't say I didn't warn you. The heck, I'm hearing people crashing things. By 0930 the next morning, Keating's forebodings began to be realized. The first invitation came with a phone call to Melroy from Crandall, who accused him of having used the psychological test as a fraudulent pretext for discharging Koffler and Burris for union activities. When Melroy rejected his demand that the two men be reinstated, Crandall demanded to see the records of the tests. Oh, they're here at my office, <laughs> Melroy told him. You're welcome to come look at them and hear the recordings of the oral portions of the test. Uh, but I, I advise you to bring your a professional psychologist along. Because unless you're a trained psychologist yourself, you're not likely to mean much to you. Oh, sure, Crandall retorted. They'd have a unintelligible to ordinary people. 
or you can get away with this frame-up. Well, don't worry, I'll be along to see them. Within ten minutes, yeah, the phone rang again. This time it was Leighton, the Atomic Power Authority man. We're much disturbed about this dispute between your company and the IFAW, he began. Well, frankly, so am I, Melroy admitted. I'm here to do my job, not play Hatfields and McCoys at this union. I've had a union trouble before, and it wasn't fun. You're the gentleman who called me last evening, aren't you? And you, you understand my portion of this matter? Certainly, Mr. Melroy. I was talking to Colonel Bradshaw, the security officer, last evening. He, he agrees that a stupid or careless workman is, under some circumstances, a more serious threat to security than any saboteur. And we realize fully how dangerous those Dornberg Giardos are. And how much more dangerous they'd be if the cybernetic controls were improperly assembled. But this man, Crandall, is talking about calling a strike. Ugh, well, let him. In the first place, he'd be against me, not against the Atomic Power Authority. And in the second place, if he does, and it goes to federal mediation, his demand for the reinstatement of those men will be thrown out. And his own organization will have to disavow his action because he'll be calling the strike against his own contract. Uh, well, I hope so. Leighton's tone indicated a hope that was eh, rather dim. I wish you luck, but you're going to need it. Within an hour, Crandall arrived at Melroy's office. Yeah, he was a young man. He gave Melroy the impression of having recently seen military service. Probably in the Indonesian campaign in 62 and 63. He also seemed a little cocky ah, and oversure of himself. Mr. Melroy, we're not going to stand for this, he began as soon as he came into the room. You're using these so-called tests as a pretext for getting rid of Mr. Koffler and Mr. Burris because of their legitimate union activities. Uh, it gave you that idea, Melroy wanted to know. Koffler and Burris... Yeah, that's a complaint they made to me, and it's borne out by facts, Crandall replied. We have on record at least half a dozen complaints that Mr. Koffler has made us out in proper indifferent affair work assignments, improper working conditions, inequities in allotting overtime work, and other infractions of the union shop conditions on behalf of Mr. Burris. So you decided to get rid of both of them. And you think that you can use this clause in our contract with your company about the persons of deficient intelligence. The fact is, eh, you're known uh, to have threatened on several occasions to get rid of both of them. I am. Melroy looked at Crandall curiously, wondering if the latter were serious, and deciding that he was. You must believe anything those people tell you. Well, they lied to you if they told you that. Naturally, that's what you'd say, Crandall replied, but... How do you account for the fact that uh, those two men, and only those two men, were dismissed for alleged uh, deficient intelligence? Uh, the tests aren't all made, Melroy replied. Until they are, you can't say that they were the, the only ones disqualified. If you look over the records of the tests, you'll see where Koffler and Burris failed and the others passed. Here, he laid the pile of written test forms and the summary and the evaluation sheets on his desk. Here, Koffler's, and here, Burris's. Uh, these are the ones of the men who had passed the test. Look them over, uh, if you want to. Crandall examined the forms and summaries of the two men who had been discharged and compared them with several random samples from the satisfactory pile. Why, well, uh, this stuff's a lot of gibberish, he exclaimed indignantly. 
This thing here, five Limerick oysters, six pairs of Don Alfonso tweezers, 700 Macedonian warriors in full battle array, eight golden crowns from the ancient secret crypts of Egypt, nine lymphatic, symphatic, perfiatic old men on crutches, and ten revolving heliotropes from the Ipsy Wipsy Institute. Great Lord, do you actually mean that you're using this stuff as an excuse for depriving men of their jobs? <laughs> no, I did that on the show. I warned you that you should have brought a professional psychologist along, Malroy reminded him. And maybe you ought to get Koffler and Burst to repeat their complaints on a lie detector. While you're at it, eh, they took the same tests in the same manner of any of the others. They just didn't have the mental equipment to cope with them as the others did. And for that reason, I won't run the risk of having them work on this job. That's just your word against... Oh, they stopped mowing. That's just your word against theirs, Crandall insisted obstinately. And the complaint is that you framed this whole thing up to get rid of them. Why, I didn't even know who either of them were until yesterday morning. And that's not the way they tell it, Crandall retorted. They say that you and Keating have been out to get them ever since they were hired. You and your supervisors have been persecuting both these men systematically. The fact that Burris has grounds for all of these previous complaints proves that. It proves that Burris has a persecution complex and that Koffler is credulous enough to believe him, Melrose replied. And that tends to confirm that... Oh, good, an airplane's coming. Confirm the results of the test they failed to pass. Oh, so that's the line you're taking. You persecute a man... And then you say he has a persecution complex if he recognizes the fact. Well, you're not going to get away with it. That's all I have to say to you, Crandall flung the task sheet and had been holding onto the desk. Is this stuff not worth the paper it's scribbled on? He turned on his heel and an automatically correct about face and strode out of the office. Melroy straightened out the papers and put them away, then sat down at his desk, filling and lighting his pipe. He was still working at 12.15 when Ben Perrier called him. Yeah, they walked out on us, he reported. Harry Crandall was out here talking to them at noon, and the whole gang handed in their wrist geigers and dosimeters and cleared out for their lockers. They say they aren't coming back till Burris and Koffler come back to work with them. Eh, then they aren't coming back, period, Melrose replied. Crandall was to see me a couple hours ago. He tells me that Burris and Koffler told him that we've been persecuting Burris, discriminating against him. Yeah, you know of anything that really happened that might make them think anything like that? No. Burris is always yelling about not getting enough overtime at work, but you, you know how it is. He's just a roustabout, a common laborer. Any overtime work that has to be done is usually a skilled laborer on his job. We generally have a few roustabouts, uh, to help out, but he's been allowed to make overtime as much as any of the others. Will the time records show that? Now they ought to. I don't know what he and Koffler and Crandall, but whatever it is, uh, I'll bet they were lying. Well, that's all right, then. How's the uh, reactor now? Hossinger says the count's down to safe limits, and the temperature's down to an active normal. And his gang found a big chunk of plutonium, eh, about one quarter uh, cm inside. He got it out. All right. 
tell Dr. Reeves to gather up all the completed or partially completed uh, test records and come out of the office. Uh, you and the others may stay on the job. We may have some men for you by this afternoon. Tomorrow morning, certainly. He hung up and then picked up the communicator phone and called his secretary. Joan, is Sid Keating out there? Yeah, send him in, will you? Keating, when he entered, was wearing a laboriously gratified expression appropriate to the successful profit of disaster. All right, Cassandra, Melroy greeted him. I'm not going to say you didn't warn me. Look, the strike is illegal. It's a violation of the Federal Labor Act of 1958. Being called without due notice of intention. This is a laborist story. Without preliminary notification and without two weeks' time allowance. Oh, they're going to claim that it isn't a strike. Yeah, they're going to call it a spontaneous work stoppage. Ah, I hope I can get Crandall on record to that effect. I'll fire every one of those men for leaving their work without permission and absence from duty without leave. How many of our own men from Pittsburgh do we have working in these machine shops and in the assembly shop here? Uh, About 60? Uh, 63. Why? You're not going to use them to work on the reactor, are you? I just am. They're all qualified cybernetics technicians, and they can do this work better than this gang we've had to hire here. Just to be on the safe side, I'm promoting all of them, as of 0800 this morning, to assistant gang foreman on salaries. That'll take them outside the union jurisdiction. Ah, but how about our contract with the IFAW? Yeah, that's been voided by Crandall's own act. In interfering with the execution of our contract, the Atomic Power Authority... Oh my god, this is so boring. You know what I think? I think the IFAW front office is going to have to disavow this. I'll hurt them to do it, not to do it. The Crandall's put inside the middle of this. How about security clearance for our own men? Nothing to that, Melroy said. Most of them are security cleared already from the work we did installing that counter-rocket control system in the USS Alaska and the the Systematic Logic Computer for the Philadelphia Project. It may take all day to get the red tape unwound, but I think we can be ready to start by 0800 tomorrow. By the time Keating had rounded up all the regular Melroy Engineering Corporation employees and Melroy had talked to the Colonel Bradshaw about the security clearances 1430 a little later, he had called on the phone by Lightning the Atomic Power Authority man. Melroy, what are you trying to do? The Atomic Power Authority man is trying to uh, get the whole plant struck out. Uh, IFAW's matter than a shot, uh, a shot stung bobcat. They claim you're going to bring in strike breakers. They're talking about picketing the whole rector area. News uh, gets around fast here, doesn't it? Melroy commented. He told Lighton that he had in mind, and the Power Authority man was considerably shaken before he had finished. But they'll uh, call a strike on the whole plant. Have you any idea... What that would mean? Oh, I certainly have. They'll either call it in legal form, in which case the whole thing will have to go to mediation and get aired, or what did I want? Or they'll pull a Pearl Harbor on you. (laughs) The way they did on me. And in that case, the president will have to intervene. And they'll fly in technicians from some of the armed force plants and uh, keep this place running. Oh, in that case, things will get set up much quicker. This Crandall uh, thinks these men I fired are martyrs, and he's preaching a crusade. He ought to carry a, an advocus diaboli on his, pi- his payroll oh, wow. <laughs> to scrutinize the qualifications of his martyrs, and he starts canonizing them. A little later, Doris Reeves came into the office, her hands full of papers and cards. I have 12 more tests completed, she reported. Only one washout. Melroy laughed. 
<laughs> Doctor, they're all washed out, he told her. It seems there was an additional test, and they all flunked it. Evinced willingness to follow unwise leadership and allow themselves to be talked into improper courses, improper courses of action, uh, you go on to New York and take all the test material, including sound records, with you. Stay at the hotel. Your pay will go on till I need you. Yeah, there'll be a, a federal mediation hearing in a day or so. My God, this is the most boring thing I've ever read in my entire life. Still trying to figure out like what the what the message is here besides. A man who just doesn't want to deal with people. He had two more telephone calls. The first, at 1530, was from Leighton. Melroy suspected that the latter had been medicating his morale with a couple of stiff drinks. His voice was almost jaunty. Well, the war's on, he announced. The IFAW is walking out on the whole plant. At 0800 tomorrow. In violation of the Federal Labor Act, Section 8, Paragraphs 4 and 5, Melroy supplemented, Crandall really has stuck his neck in the guillotine. Hey, what's Washington's doing? Ooh, President Hartley is ordering a naval personnel flown in from Kenton Bunkport Reaction Lab. And they will be here at about 0300 tomorrow. And a couple of federal mediators are coming into LaGuardia at 1700. Oh, they're going to hold preliminary hearings at the new federal building on Washington Square, beginning 2000. Oh, a couple of IFAW negotiators are coming up from the National Union headquarters at Oak Ridge. Oh, they should be getting it about the same time. You better be on hand and have Dr. Reeves there with you. There's a good chance this thing may get cleared up in a day or so. I will undoubtedly be there, complete with Dr. Reeves, Melroy Melroy replied, and it will be a pleasure. An hour later, Ben Perrier called from the reactor area, his voice strained with anger. Scott, uh, do you know what those... He gargled obscenities for a moment. You know what they've done? They've repacked the number one Dornberg Giardo and got a chain reaction started again. Ah, who? Fred Housinger's gang. Apparently, at Harry Crandall's orders, the excuse was that it would be unsafe to leave the reactor in its dismantled condition during a prolonged shutdown. They were assuming, I suppose, that the strike could be allowed to proceed unopposed. But, of course, the real reason was that they wanted to get a chain reaction started to keep our people from working on the reactor. Well... Didn't Housinger try to uh, stop them? Uh, not very hard. I asked him what he had the deputy marshal badge on his shirt and the Luger on his hip, uh, but he said that he had orders to, uh, to use force for fear of prejudicing mediators. Melroy swore disgustedly. All right. Gather up our private papers and get Steve and Joe uh, to come on out. We only work here when we're able. Doris Reeves... Ah, she's waiting on the street level, and when we reached the new federal building in what had formerly been the Greenwich Village District of Manhattan that evening. Ah, she had a heavy briefcase with her, which she took. I was afraid I'd keep you waiting, she said. I came down from the hotel by cab, and there was a frightful jam at 40th Street, and another one just below Madison Square. Yes... It gets worse every year. Pardon my obsession, but nine times out of ten, ninety-nine out of a hundred, it's a fault of some fool doing something stupid, speaking about stupid things. Though I did one. Forgot to take that gun, 
out of my overcoat pocket and didn't notice that I had it until I was on the subway. Coming in, having a big flashlight in the other pocket, that doesn't matter. What I'm worried about is that somebody will find out I have a gun and raise a howl about my coming armed to a mediation hearing. The hearing was held in one of the big conference rooms on the 42nd floor. Melroy was careful to remove his overcoat and lay it on a table in the corner and went and then helped Doris off with hers and lay it on top of his own. There were three men in the room when they arrived. Kenneth Lighton, the Atomic Power Authority man, 50-ish, acquiring a waistline bulge and losing his hair. Mr. Lyons, tall, slender. What is that? I can't tell. Oh, I see a neighbor out there. Tapping away at their grill. People are grilling in a beautiful summer evening. Anyways, back to this boring as hell story. The latter of the two were federal mediators. All three had been lounging in armchairs talking about the new plays on Broadway. They all rose when Melroy and Doris Reeves came over to join them. We mustn't discuss business until the others get here, Leighton warned. It's bad enough what all three of us got here ahead of them. I'll be sure to think you're trying to make an unfair advantage of them. I suppose neither of you have had any time to see any of the new plays. Fortunately, Doris and Melroy had gone to the theater after dinner. The evening before last, they were able to join the conversation. Uh, Young Mr. Quillen mm -hmm, wanted Doris Reeves' opinion as a psychologist of the mental processes of the heroine of the play that they had seen. As nearly as she could determine, Doris replied the heroine in question had exhibited nothing even loosely describable as mental processes of any sort. They were still on the subject when the two labor negotiators, Mr. Cronin Mr. Fields, arrived. Cronin was in his 60s uh, with a nearsighted squint and compressed look of concentration of an old-timey precision machinist. Fields was much younger and sported a Phi Beta Kappa key. Lions, who seemed to be the senior mediator, thereupon called the meeting to order, and they took their places at the table. Now, uh, gentlemen, Dr. Reeves, uh, this will simply be an informal discussion so that everybody can see everybody else's position on the matter. Is We won't bother to make a sound recording. Then, if we are managed to reach some common understanding of the question this evening, we can start the regular hearing, say, at the... Thirteen hundred tomorrow, is that agreeable? It was. The young mediator, Quillen, cleared his throat. Ah, it seems from our information that this entire dispute arises from the discharge uh, by Mr. Melroy of two of his employees named Koffler and Burris. Uh, Is that correct? Well, there's also the question of Melroy Engineering Corporation's attempt to use strike bearers and the Long Island Atomic Power Authorities having condoned this unfair employment practice. Uh, Cronin said, acidly. And there's also the question of the IFAW's calling a Pearl Harbor strike of my company, Melroy added. Uh, we resent the characterization, Cronin retorted. Uh, it's a term in common usage. It denotes a strike called with a warning or declaration of intention. Which this was, Murray told them, if there's also a question of the IFAW calling a general strike in the illegal manner in the Long Island Reaction Plant, Leighton spoke up of 16 hours' notice. Well, that wasn't the fault of the IFAW as an organization, Fields argued, and Mr. Cronin and I agreed that a walkout date should be postponed for the next two weeks in accordance with the provisions of the Federal Labor Act. Well, how about my company, Malroy wanted to know, your IFAW... 
Members walked out on me without any notice whatsoever at 1200 a day, and I am to consider that an act of your union. You disavowed and called them and they're quitting the permission. And how about the action of members of our union acting on instructions from Harry Crandall in repackaging the number one Dornberg Giardo breeder reactor at our plant? After the plutonium and the U 238 and the neutron source containers had been removed in order to reinstate a chain reaction to prevent Mr. Aylmore's. Uh, Melroy's employees from working on the reactor, Layton demanded. Am I to understand that the union sustains that action, too? Well, I didn't know about that, Fields said, somewhat startled. Neither had I, Cronin added. When, when did it happen? How about 1600 a day, Melroy told him. We were on the plane from Oak Ridge then, Fields declared. We know nothing about that. Well, are you going to take the responsibility for it, or aren't you? Layton insisted. Lions who had been toying with a small metal paperweight, wrapped on the table with a gentleman, he interrupted. We are trying to cover too many subjects at once. I suggest that we confine ourselves at the beginning to the question of the dismissal of these men, Burris and Koffler. If we find that the IFAW has a legitimate grievance in what we may call the Burris-Koffler question, we can settle that and then go on to these other questions. Uh, I'm agreeable to that, Melroy said. Eh, so are we, Cronin added. All right, then, since the IFAW is the complaining party in this question, perhaps eh, you gentlemen would state the grounds for your complaints. Fields and Cronin uh, exchanged glances. Cronin nodded to Fields, and the latter rose. The two employees in question had stated they had been victims of discrimination and persecution because of union activities. Koffler was the union shop steward for the men employed by the Melroy Engineering Corporation. And Burris had been active in bringing complaints about unfair employment practices. Furthermore, it was the opinion of the IFAW that the psychological tests imposed on their members had been a fraudulent pretext for dismissing these two men. And, in any case, the practice of compelling workers to submit to such tests was insulting, uh, degrading, and not a customary condition of employment. With that... I sat down. Melroy was on his feet at once. I'll deny those statements, categorically and in serratum. He replied, They are based entirely upon misrepresentations made by the two men who were disqualified by the tests and dropped from my payroll because of being, in the words of my contract with your union, persons of unsound mind, deficient intelligence, and or emotional instability. What happened is that your local official, Crandall, accepted everything you told him uncritically, and you accepted everything Crandall told you in the same spirit. Before I go on, Melroy continued, turned to Lyons. Have I your permission to let Dr. Reeves explain about these tests himself and how they were given and evaluated? The story is killing me. Permission granted by Lyons, Dorson, Reeves arose. At some length, she explained the nature and purpose of these tests and in her method of scoring and correlating them. Well, did Mr. Melroy suggest to you that any specific employee or employees were undesirable and ought to be eliminated, Fields asked? Yeah, certainly not, Doris Reeves became angry. And if he had, I'd have taken the first plane out of here. That suggestion is insulting. And for your information, I never met Mr. Melroy before, the uh, day before yesterday afternoon, and I'm not dependent upon him for anything. I took this job as an uh, accommodation to Dr. Carl von Heinrich, 
who ordinarily does such work for Melroy Company, and I'm losing money by remaining here. Eh, does that satisfy you? Yes, it does, Fields admitted. He was obviously impressed by the mention of the distinguished Austrian psychologist's name. If I may ask uh, Mr. Melroy a question, I get that these tests are given to all your employees. Uh, why do you demand such extraordinary level of intelligence from your employees, even common laborers? Extraordinary, oh, extraordinary, uh, Malroy echoed. If the standards established by those tests are extraordinary, then God help this country. We are becoming a race of morons. And I'll leave the statement to Dr. Reeves for confirmation. She's already pointed out that all is required to pass those tests is ordinary adult mental capacity. My company specializes in cybernetic control systems. He continued, in spite of a lot of misleading colloquial jargon about thinking machines and giant brains, a cybernetic system doesn't really think. It only does what it's designed and built to do. If somebody builds a mistake into it, it will automatically and infallibly repeat that mistake in practice. He's right. Cronin said. The men that build a machine like that have got to be as smart as the machine's supposed to be, or the machine will be as dumb as they are. Oh my god, this is horrible. Fields turned on him angrily, which side are you supposed to be on anyhow, he demanded. Yeah, you're probably a lawyer, Melroy said. I'll bet Mr. Cronin's an old reaction plant man. Cronin nodded unthinkably in confirmation. All right, then ask him what those Dornberg Giardos are like. And then let him, let me ask you, suppose some moron fixed up something that would go wrong or made the wrong kind of a mistake himself around one of those reactors. It was purely a rhetorical question, but much later, when he would have uh, time to think about it, Scott Melroy was to wonder if ever in history such a question had been answered so promptly and with such dramatic calamitousness. Three seconds after he stopped speaking, ah, the lights went out. For a moment, they were silent and motionless. Then somebody across the table from Melroy began to say, Yeah, what the devil? Doris Reeves beside him clutched his arm. At the head of the table, Lyons was fuming impatiently, and Kenneth Leighton snapped up a pocket lighter and held it up. The Venetian screened windows across the room faced east. In the flicker of the lighter, Melroy made his way round to them and drew open the slots of one looking out. Except for the headlights... Finally, something's happening. Except for the headlights of cars, found down the street, the lights of ships in the harbor, the city was completely blacked out. But there was one other horrible light far away in the distant tip of Long Island. A huge ball of flame floating upward at the tip of a column of fiery gas. As he watched... There were twinkles of unbearable brightness at the base of the pillar of the fire, spreading into awesome sheet flashes, and other fireballs soared up. When the sound and the shock wave of the first blast reached him, the main power reactors, too, Melroy said to himself, not realizing that he spoke audibly, uh, too well shielded for the blast to get them, but the heat melted the fissionables down to critical mass. Lighten, Layton, the lighter still burning, was beside him now. That's not God. It can't be anything else. Why, the whole plant's gone. There aren't enough uh, other generators in this whole area to handle a hundredth of the demand. 
Oh, don't blame that on my alleged strike breakers, Malroy warned. They hadn't got security clear to enter the reactor area when this happened. What do you think happened? Cronin asked. One of the Dornberg Gerardos let go? Yes, your man Crandall. If he survived that, it's his bad luck, Malroy said grimly. Last night, while Fred Housinger was pulling the fissionables and radioactives out of the number one breeder, he found a big nugget of PU-239, about uh, one quarter centimeter. I don't know what it was to be done with it, but I do know that Crandall had the maintenance gang uh, repack the reactor to keep my people from working on it. Nobody will ever find out just what happened. Uh, They were in a hurry. They probably shoved things in any old way. Somehow that big subcritical nugget must have got back in in the breeding cans, which they were pretty ripe by that time. Must have been shoved in too close to it and to one another. You know how fast those DGs work? It just took this long to build up a CM for a bomb-type reaction. You remember what I was saying before the lights went out? Well, it happened. Some moron, some untested and undetected moron, made the wrong kind of mistake. That guy just said exactly what I said. Now I have to look. I don't know. Looking out my window, it's almost like somebody's listening to me and repeating what I'm saying. I'm becoming a creepy shut-in where I think people are listening to me and mocking me. Well, anyway, it seems like they moved on. Well, I guess the strike's off now. That's one thing. But all those people out there Woman-like, Doris Reeves was thinking particularly rather than generally, and the humans rather than abstractions. It must have killed everybody for miles around. Sid Keating, Malroy thought, and Joe Ricci, and Ben Perrier, and Steve Chalmers, and all the workmen who had brought here from Pittsburgh to their death. Then he stopped, thinking about them. It didn't do any good to think of men who had been killed. He learned that years ago as a kid, second lieutenant in Korea. This is horrible. The people uh, to think about were the millions in greater New York and up the Hudson Valley to Albany and as far south as Trenton. Caught without light in the darkness, without heat in the dead of winter, without power in subways and skyscrapers and on railroads and inter-turbine lines. Inter-turbine lines. I'm not looking that up. He turned to the woman beside him. Doris. Before you get your Board of Psychiatry and Neurology Diploma, you had to qualify as a regular MD, didn't you? Eh. Why, yes. Then you'd better report to the nearest hospital. Any doctor at all is going to desperately be needed for the next day or so. Me, I will have a reserve major's commission in the Army Corps of Engineers. I'll probably be calling up reserve officers with any radios that are still working. Until I hear differently, I'm ordering myself on active duty as of now. He looked around. Anybody uh, know where the nearest army headquarters is? This is getting ridiculous. This recruiting station. Uh, down on the 30-something floor, Quillen said. It's probably closed now, though. Uh, ground defense. This is so horrible. <laughs> I was thinking this story is going to go in the direction of he's so focused on people being morons. Then you have the opposing opinion, which is, hey, you're being harsh on people and you're not being reasonable and then finally the place melts down and I'm thinking okay so this is where he's going to learn that you're, he was wrong in his thinking and you need to be more open to you know the fact that you might be part of the problem but nope it's just being reinforced and now he's going straight into action mode 
Ground Defense Command, Midtown City, Lighton said. They have a medical section of their own. They'll be glad to get Dr. Reeves, too. Melroy helped her out with her coat and handled, handed her her handbag and then shrugged into his own overcoat and belted it about him. The weight of the flashlight and the automatic sagging the pockets. He'd need both. The gun as much as the light. So he's not absent-minded. It was all intentional. New York had more than its share of vicious criminals to whom the power failure would be a uh, perfect devil scent. Handling Doris the light, handing Doris the light, he let her take his left arm. Together, they left the room and went down the hallway to the stairs and long walk to the darkened street below, into a city that had suddenly been cut off from its very life energy, a city that had put all of its eggs in one basket and left the basket in the path of any blundering foot. Well, there you go. That was uh, depressing. Guy didn't learn any lesson at all. He just continued to treat people like crap uh, and uh, in the end, he was justified. A story written by an author who probably spent way too much time in his house and uh, had a lot of outrage and opinions about the world going on around him and decided to write a book about it, or a story, and uh, just to justify himself. It's kind of like when I read uh, The Iron Heel, uh, probably the other end of the spectrum, uh, a story about a socialist leader in his rise to power and um, it was pretty annoying just because the socialist leader was always right and they talk about how great he was in debates and how he always won and nobody could get around his logic and he's always yeah, but you know the debates were written where he would go on big long speeches making his point uh, about why capitalism is horrible and everything and then instead of giving an opposing opinion or writing an opposing opinion in the story that the uh leader would have to contend with they just said uh they'd always just say and the other people were so mad and they said something but then the leader you know blah 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 and he's right and it was frustrating to read because it was very 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 one-sided uh this is kind of on the other end of the spectrum uh very one-sided just a person who thinks that if you're not smart enough uh you know you're you're gonna kill us all and i have the right to do whatever i want we had to learn about labor unions uh, pages and pages of learning about labor union laws, but uh, doesn't address the fact that you can't hire a bunch of people and then just change the rules once they're already working there and then find a way to fire them, um, especially when you're dealing with labor unions. But doesn't matter in this story. So in the end, crabby guy decides the two most annoying people, he thinks they're morons, and uh, thanks to testing, turns out he's right. Uh, the only two people he didn't like are the ones that are the morons and should be fired. Uh, and those morons apparently uh, decide to screw up at work and they burn down the entire uh, nuclear factory, which sends the, the world into chaos. And, of course, he's the hero, so thank God he's got his gun. And uh, he's going to go join the military and whisks the attractive psychologist uh, doctor away to safety. The end. Just horrible. Eh, it's been a... It's been a rough weekend. Everyone's tense. This story sucked. So, at least we got the, uh... 
soothing sounds of the outdoors going on right now. So I'll just enjoy that for a while. So thanks for listening. Uh, I think I'm only going to do this once a week now instead of twice a week. Because I got another little side project I decided I wanted to do that I have yet to actually start doing. So, uh, going to have Book Boys, going to have a Leaves of Glen once a week, and that's going to be it. And then I'm going to have my side project. Oh, it's going to be so much fun. So, uh, tune in next week, and thanks for listening.